I was just sitting there thinking, I was like, you know what's crazy? You guys pay me <laughs> to come and talk to you every single week. Isn't that, that's kind of, I mean, I never thought. I, that's true. <laughs> Good quit. I never thought that anybody would want to listen to me enough. Well, of course, I don't know. Maybe in hindsight, you guys have changed your mind. Who knows? <laughs> that's right. There's always hope, Chuck. I just thought that was crazy. I was just I was like, this is, I'm, this is a weird thing. But it's a good thing, and I'm very happy to be here with you guys. So we're continuing our series. This will be the last in the series of the names of God. And this morning we're going to be talking about the highest and tallest things, just to kind of get us on the topic. Let's, let's warm up our listening ears a little bit. We're going to be talking about the highest and tallest things. So I'm going to tell you something, and you're going to try to guess how tall it is. Okay. So this, the tallest waterfall in the world is Angel Falls. Okay. Just you know, once, once you have a guess, you can just shout it out. How tall do you think Angel Falls is? 1,200 feet. That's a good guess. Any other guesses? Tom's the only one that knows waterfalls, I guess. It's not in Argentina. Ooh! But it's, you're close. It is, the waterfall is 2,624 feet tall. It's, it's half a mile tall. Where is it? That's the, anybody know? Anybody guess where it's at? It's in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Victoria Falls. This is in Africa. That's the largest waterfall. Yeah. This, well, largest as in, you know, volume of water and width. This is the tallest. Okay. Next one. What do you guys think is the tallest house of cards that has ever been built? Any guesses? Any guesses? 50 feet. 50 feet. Okay. Any other guesses? That's too high, by the way. 15. 20, 15, okay. 31. 31, pretty close. Those are all in the right areas. 25 feet tall. Just crazy. Set the world record. By the way, it required over 1,000 decks of cards to build this, and it weighed 140 pounds. Just nuts. Just for reference, the peak of this ceiling right here, I do believe is 30 feet, just about. Uh, so, next question. Do you guys know what the tallest building is in the world? Well, it's Burj uh, Khalifa. It's in uh, Dubai. But do you guys know how tall it is? Any guesses? 2,700. 2,700. Man, that's, I mean, you're not that close. You're a little bit off. 2,716.5. Last week. Oh, you're in architecture classes. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> okay, Mr. Architecture Boy. What's the tallest Lego tower has ever been built? Uh, <laughs> and feet. Guesses. Any guesses? A hundred feet? Did you learn about the largest Lego tower in your class too? Tom, do you just like 50? It's 114. I mean, you were pretty close at 100. It's, it's very tall. It took 450,000 bricks. 
Yeah, it only stood for five days. They took it down because they didn't think it was safe after that. But it did set a world record. Okay. Tallest mountain, Mount Everest. I'm sure you guys already knew that. But any guesses on how high it is above sea level? That's pretty close. <laughs> 29,029 feet. Although it has changed over the years. Now, give or take a couple inches. However, it is not the furthest point away from the center of our Earth because, you know, because we're spinning, it's kind of more of an oval. So it's actually further away at the equator. There's a mountain that's further away from the center of the Earth than Mount Everest. But this one's the highest above sea level. Okay, tallest block of cheese. <laughs> What do you guys think is the tallest block of cheese that's ever been made? Ten feet. Ten feet? Okay. I'm I'm five ten. Yeah, I get it, Trina. Thank you. Actually, it's pretty close to my height. It was six feet tall. Guess anywhere. Where do you guys think this was made? With, yeah. Okay. I mean, it says it right there too. But I mean, where else? Where else would it have been made? It, it debuted in the nineteen sixty four World Fair. It was. Six feet tall, six and a half feet wide, 14 and a half feet long, and weighed nearly 35,000 pounds. And it took a tour across the U.S. I mean, it went to like 20 different states, and people loved seeing the giant block of cheese. Uh, <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Okay, last one here. What is the highest that a bird can fly? The highest flying bird is the bar-headed goose, obviously. But how high do you think it flies? 30,000. 30,000. Okay. Any other guesses? 7,000. Okay. Just think about the highest you've ever flown. 5,000. Okay. Any other guesses? 30,000 was a little too high, but it was the closest. 21,000 feet. And they're kind of cute, actually. I think they're cuter than our geese. You can see why they're called bar-headed moose. And the reason they fly so high is that they have to fly over the Himalayan mountains and their migration, migration path. So um, they can fly this, this elevation in, in like eight hours, which is just crazy. They like go from the base of the mountain and fly over the mountain and come down the other side in just eight hours, which is insane. Scientists are like, there's no way a bird can do that. And then they put trackers on these birds and they're like, wow, this bird did that. It's pretty crazy. I would say I'm not surprised. Some of these facts surprise me, but I'm not surprised that Wisconsin made the largest block of cheese. Where else? Oh, I think my lapel just died. Oh, sad, kind of. We'll see. See where it goes. Anyway, so the reason we're talking about the highest and tallest things this morning is not merely for our enjoyment. You want to go grab some batteries? Thank you. The reason we're talking about the highest and tallest thanks this morning is not merely for our enjoyment, but it's because the name of God we're talking about today. What are you doing? You got some batteries? No, it's, it's two double A's. I'm sorry, buddy. Good try. <laughs> the name we're talking about, El Elyon, means the most high God. And while it won't change, why? Okay. I'll do this to make Nene happy. That's right. While having 
the knowledge of the largest block of cheese may not change your life. Although if you're in jeopardy, and one of the facts that I've shared with you in one of my messages wins money, you better give some of that back to the church. Not to me, but I just feel like it's appropriate. You know, I've shared a lot of facts with you guys over the years. And I think they could come in handy at some point. But they're not going to change your life. But what will change your life is knowing the most high God. Give me just a second. Oh, yeah, now we're cooking with peanut oil. So we're going to talk about the name El Elyon today, and we're going to look at the first reference of it in Genesis chapter 14. So if you would, go ahead and turn there with me. So I'm sure you guys are familiar with the kings in this passage. Pretty common names like Amraphel, Arioch, Shadorlamir, and Tidal. I'm sure you guys are familiar with those kings involved in this story. Obviously, I, I would be surprised if you're familiar with those names. They're not, they're not very important names in the Old Testament. They only come up here. And they were, in fact, very small kings. More like leaders of territories, like chiefs, but they called him kings. And this is during the time of Abram, um, before he got the name Abraham, but uh, I'm just going to call him Abraham because that's what's in my head. So Abraham got into the promised land, the land that God said he would go to. And soon after he was there, these four kings that I mentioned earlier decided to go against five other kings, which are named Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemember, and the king of Bela. Okay. Sorry, Shemeber. Shemeber. So, it sounds like a month name. Anyway, and the king of Bela. So these four kings decide to go against these five kings, and the four kings are victorious, and they win, and they take the stuff from the five kings, and they take the people and the territory and all that. And one family that got caught up in this whole thing is Lot's family. So Lot, you see, is Abraham's nephew. And when Abraham found out that his nephew Lot got taken, he was upset a lot. Get it? A lot? Upset a lot? Okay. So we're picking up there in Genesis 14. That's where we're going to start. Verse 14. 14, 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive... He let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought them all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Shadorlamir, and the kings were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaphai, which is the king's valley. So at this point, you can just stop there for a second. Abraham leads a successful mission, all right? And he rescues Lot and all the other people and the stuff. And it's at this point where the story kind of takes an unexpected turn. It's kind of surprising what we read next. So look at verse 18. And Melchizedek... King of Salem, this is the first time he's mentioned. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God's 
of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of all. Abraham gave him a tenth of all of what was taken. So this is the first time that El Elyon appears in Scripture. And it's right there in verse 18. The God Most High. God Most High. That's El Elyon. Now Melchizedek is a very interesting character as well. And we will talk about him a little bit later. And he's actually very important to our Advent season as we will see. But we'll get that, to that in a minute. But for now I want to focus on the name El Elyon. So El, as we kind of mentioned last week, briefly, is uh, short for Elohim. Elohim is the Hebrew word that means God. Just so you know, Hebrew is read from right to left, not left to right like we read. So that's why El is on the right side, it's this way. So El is the God, El, Elyon, the God, that's the part. And then Elyon is the adjective that means high or upper. And the root of Elyon is this Hebrew word, Allah, which is the verb that means to ascend or to go up or to climb. All right, so it's also sometimes used, the word Allah, to talk about the uppermost point of something, like the highest, the pinnacle, the, the, the top of the mountain, for instance. And the word supreme would be a good synonym, not the supreme kind of pizza, but like the highest thing. So we kind of get some context of what this name El Elyon means by how Melchizedek and Abram talk about it in their conversation. So they call El Elyon the possessor of the earth and heaven, the one who delivered the enemies into the hand of Abram, so this, this highest being. And, and if, it's a few short words, possessor of heaven and earth, but it's actually kind of a big deal, right? Uh, heaven is sometimes used in the Hebrew word to talk about the place God resides. But it also talks about everything that is not earth. So the clouds, the air, the stars, everything beyond that. When you look up, that's the heaven or heavens. And in this case, you may have noticed that everything in the observable universe falls into one or two categories. Things on the earth and things in heaven or the heavens. Right? So this is one way of saying that everything... Everything that exists, even the things that are unknown to them, belongs to El Elyon. He owns it because he is the highest God, God most high. So let's help draw some further meaning to this name, some greater context, by looking at some of these other passages. And I'll have them here on the screen for you. All these are from Psalm, and Psalm is the uh, highest user, the Psalms are the highest user of the name El Elyon. So Psalm 57, 1 through 3 says, Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to El Elyon, to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will ascend from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. So this next passage from Psalm that we're going to read is referring to the Israelites' time in the wilderness. All right, so 
Psalm 78, 34 through 39 says, when he killed them, this is after they were disobedient, he gave them many chances to return, and they kept being disobedient. He says, when he killed them, then they sought after him and returned and searched diligently for God. And they remembered that God was their rock, and the Most High God was their Redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. Which is a cheery way of talking about humanity, isn't it? But I mean, compared to the eternity of God, that's what we are. Compared to the Most High God. And then in this next passage from Psalm 97, verse 9, not only does it show that God is the possessor of all heaven and earth, as we saw earlier, but it shows that he's above any other God. So let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have received, have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. That's Yahweh. Right there. For you are Yahweh most high over all the earth. Yahweh El Elyon over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So interestingly, this passage even calls other gods to worship El Elyon. Now this word gods is used more liberally in the Old Testament than we use it in our Western culture. So when we say God, we're talking about usually one monotheistic being that's the highest, and we realize that he is really the only true God, so it would seem weird for us to call other things God. But in that time, even the word God was more of a title, and it was even sometimes used of men. And certainly, um, I think some other spiritual beings fall into that category, but it's not like how we use the word God. So it's saying that even if there's other powers and authorities, everything is under El Elyon, the God who is above all. And just to be clear, Yahweh is El Elyon. Here we see that Yahweh El Elyon is the specific God being mentioned. You know, it's not some other God. It's not a Canaanite God. It's nothing else. It is Yahweh. There's no confusion about that. I like to think about this kind of the way that we have the federal court system in the United States. So at the lowest level, we have district-level courts, right? And they're smaller, and they're all over the U.S. And when they make a decision, it's usually pretty final, but in some cases it can be appealed, and then it would go to a circuit court. And that circuit court can make a different decision and overrule the district court. And then that... It covers more area, has a little more authority, but then even those decisions can be appealed and then go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has final say in the country, right? So they can overrule anything that's made in a federal court. And when they say something, it sticks, it stays, it can't be overruled because they are the highest authority in our country. So kind of take this principle of the final decision, the final say, and apply it to everything in the universe, and then you have El Elyon, right? So when God says something, when he does something, 
It cannot be undone. It cannot be unsaid. It cannot be overturned. It cannot be overruled. And there are a lot of authorities in our life. A lot of things talking to us and instructing us and speaking to us. We have teachers and bosses. We have HOAs and townships and states and federal governments. And then we have less formal authorities like our friends and our family and maybe even more subversive or in the background authorities like our culture. And they're saying all kinds of things to us, right? There might be groups saying that you're no good. There might be a boss saying that you're not capable of doing something. There might be doctors that are saying your prognosis is impossible. Your family might be saying that they're not, you're not worth your time. But if El Elyon is calling you to it, if El Elyon says it can happen, if El Elyon makes a promise, it is going to happen no matter what. Amen. After all, he possesses the heavens and the earth. He accomplishes all things. He is our rock. He is our redeemer. He is eternal when we are temporary. He is exalted far above all gods. He is above every idol and idea and philosophy. He's the pinnacle, the top, the supreme, sovereign God of this universe. He is El Elyon, and he is the final word. And as we read this morning, the first time this name is used in Scripture, it comes out of the mouth of Melchizedek, which I said we were going to kind of come back to. So here we are. And Melchizedek is a very interesting character, especially in this Advent season. Because you see the name Melchizedek, we are talking about names a lot in this series, the name Melchizedek actually means the king of righteousness. Right? Zedek, which is the root word we looked at last week in Yahweh Sekednu, means the God of righteousness, while Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. And Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which means peace in Hebrew. Interesting, isn't it? So you have this king of righteousness who rules over a kingdom of peace. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And then this king reveals the Most High God and is a priest of the Most High God. And if your Jesus buzzers aren't going off, you need to recalibrate them because this has Jesus written all over it. And it's obviously Melchizedek isn't Jesus himself, but he is what we call a type of Jesus. And this is a, a theological term, which just means he's an example of what Jesus is going to be. So when you hear theologians or pastors or Sunday school teachers talk about typology or a type, what they're just saying is, this sets an example for something that's going to come later. right? So Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. He shows God revealing who Jesus is going to be through Melchizedek. And there's proof of this, uh, corroboration, so to speak, in Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there, because I have condensed a few of the verses of the chapter here for you. So this is from Hebrews 7, the reference is down there. For this Melchizedek, talking about the same story we just read here in Genesis 14, king of Salem, priest 
of El Elyon, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed, uh, sorry, apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is the king of peace. For it was attested to him, meaning Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a quotation from Psalm 110. So that's another clue that God laid here. The former priests, the normal priests in this system, on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death for continuing. So these priests would die, so there needed to be more priests. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession to them. So a long time ago, before the words in Hebrew, the book of Hebrew was even written, El Elyon was putting pieces into place to point towards the appearance of his son Jesus, who would be the king of righteousness who would rule over a kingdom of peace and who would be a priest that served him eternally and would save us for eternity. The Most High God had the power and authority and desire to put this plan into motion. And because he is the Most High God, nothing is going to stop it. And right now, the same God, El Elyon, is working in our lives to bring about his will and accomplish his purpose, just like he has been throughout all of history. And I think it's pretty cool to see how God works and what he's doing. And I think in this series, when we looked at his different names, it's revealed a lot about who he is and what he does and why he does it. And the last message in the Names of God uh, series this last message, I want to spend some time summing up what we've talked about and looking at the different names. And as we go through these names again, I want to let them, I want you to let them sink into your understanding of who God is. So, first of all, in the series, we looked at the name Yahweh. Yod Hey Vav Hey, the letters of his name. And this name comes from the form of will be or to be in Hebrew. And his name is what he is. He is the existence, the existent one. He will be. He is. He is consistent, eternal, and personal. He reveals himself. Right? And Yahweh encompasses all of that. And then on top of this foundation of his personal name, we saw other characteristics tied to his name, like Yahweh Saba, the God of hosts, the God of angel armies. And we saw how God is powerful, how he is a warrior, how he goes to battle on behalf, and how he's leading us into battles to win victories. Right? And then we looked at Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides, the God who makes provision. We looked at how God led Abraham up the mountain, where Jerusalem would one day stand, so that Abraham would sacrifice his own son to prove his love, but in the end, God ended up providing the sacrifice. And we saw how God not only provides, 
but how he can see into the future and make provision. How he is not just a God who takes care of a problem right when it shows up or right when we pray, but he is always aware of what's going on and what we're going to need. Then we look to the name Yahweh Rapha, which is the God who heals or the God who purifies. And remember, we saw the Israelites coming through the Red Sea. They have this amazing worship on the other side. And then they're in the desert for three days and they get very thirsty. And they come upon this water in the desert that's bitter. And God purifies it. And then he promises that he can purify us too if we follow him. And then we looked at Yahweh Sikainu. God is our righteousness. And we saw how this name talks about how God is the origin of what is right and good. How through his son, eventually God is going to make everything into right standing with him. And then today, lastly, we looked at El Elyon, the God above all gods, the most high God. God bows to no one. He answers to no one. He has no authority over him. Everything belongs to him. This means that if he says it's possible, it is. And it's going to happen. And I think we're all looking for miracles in our lives. And El Elyon is the God who makes that happen. And in fact, I think we're looking for all the things that we've read about and studied in these names. Aren't we all looking for some of our battles to be won? Aren't we all in need of something and asking God to step into our situation and provide? Who isn't looking for a healer? Who wants to be made right and to do the right things? Who wouldn't want to worship the one and true God, the highest God? Yahweh is that God, and he's been working and moving for a long time. And he's going to keep working and moving in our lives. Please pray with me this morning. Yahweh, our Father, the Most High God, I just pray that you reveal yourself to us continually, that we can keep learning about you, that we can lean on you when we're in need. I just pray that you give us the strength and courage to follow you wherever you go. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.